I always love saying this. We can edit that out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it never gets edited. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness, I'm Rodney, over there Steve. Hey. And tonight we are wrapping up Clark Ashton Smith month with his uh, comedic masterpiece, Monty Python and the Seven Geishes. 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 Gesh. Um, yes, it's apparently pronounced Gesh. It's and like Gaelic. all things in Gaelic, there's two-step process. One, say it. Two, be wrong when you say it. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because I've been pronouncing that my entire life as Gaius mm -hmm. or Gaius, depending, you know, because that, that word comes up in fantasy literature often. It's a spell in D&D. Yeah, and it's Gesh, and you learn something new all the time, mm -hmm. and that's what I learned. I learned that and that the Chicken Little story can be inverted <laughs> because okay. th in my opinion this story is chicken little in reverse yeah one of the one of the striking things about this story is rather than these cosmic ancient deities being these figures of horror and just mind-blowing insanity and wanting to devour the world. They're all actually very polite. Yeah, he, um, well, he has, it's the other side of that indifference coin. You have the Lovecraftian indifference coin, which is um, you're an ant to these things and they'll step on you. Mm -hmm. The other half of that coin is you're an ant to these things and they're just, it's an ant. Who cares? <laughs> they ignore you. Oh, it's not even ignore. I mean, hell. Well, okay. But, Sothagal but, was actually quite polite. <laughs> but you, you did get, I guess we should get into a little bit what it's about. But you did get, especially from Sothagal, you got like this sense of menace behind the, his being polite. Um, kind of. You know? Well, it was like, I'm full. So I'm not going to eat you. But... My buddy down the way, he might want to eat you. Right. That that's definitely menacing. And now it's not. It's not a who well, dares disturb the squatting of Sathagua, right? Or whatever he does when he's you know hanging out. I, I suppose it's how you read that bit of dialogue, you know, because I read it more like dude, because he. <laughs> went through great lengths to tell us how lazy and so so he, it's almost this this image of Sathagwa as this stoner as uh Spicoli from uh Fast Times at Ridgemont High I, I, he just I, like I, opens his eye and he's like dude Sathagwa from the best coast right <laughs> right <laughs> uh yeah bro I'm glad you came but I'm full <laughs> Yeah, see, if he was really a stoner, he just would have beaten him because, you know, munchies, dude. Well, apparently he already had the munchies because there was fresh bodies. So just to give you guys a quick 
like elevator synopsis. That's not Monty Python and the Seven Geshes. Although that's probably the best way to interpret my reading of the story. You have a great and mighty like tough guy. He's a magistrate in 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 Camoria. Uh, yeah, and this happens um before the fall of uh Camoria. Right. This is like the classic age of Hyperborea. Yeah. So this is pre um so the Pantry of the Ours. The Pantry, yeah. Um yeah, so he's like a big deal. He's like the second cousin to the king. Right. He's king's cousin. He's a he's a hunter. He he hunts for sport and <laughs> Sleuths and vampire bats are not good sport. Yeah, he, he doesn't hunt the easy stuff. Even dinosaurs, he doesn't hunt. Right. He goes for the. Uh, he basically he hunts people. No, he hunt, he was going after the saber toothed tiger. Was he? I thought he was going after yeah. the uh, the things in the mountains who were degenerate people. No, no, that he was, was he was after the he was after saber toothed tigers. Is why he went up the mountain. The uh, the degenerate tribe was uh, just kind of a hindrance. An added bonus. <laughs> he was stalking them. An added bonus. Okay. So he goes. He goes up to the mountain. He's got his. This, his name is. Um. He's definitely got a CAS name. His name is Vuz. Yes. Vuz. Ralabar Vuz. Yeah, Ralabar Vuz. Ralabar Vuz. And his band of uh, adventurers, we'll call them the Vuz Brothers. They're getting the, the band back together. No, the band's already together. They go up to the top of the mountain. They figure out that, well, you know, I want to drop down in these caves, hunt me some mans. Yeah, and these are, are your typical weird tales, um, degenerate, de-evolved, de low, mm. low people. So essentially, essentially uh, apes that walk a little more upright. They're like Homo erectus. Or yeah, something. this is kind of like his version of Howard's um, um, Picts mm-hmm. or Lovecraft's Everything But White People. <laughs> Oh boy. Everyone. And he's hunted them before. He's had experience doing this. So he, he goes, well, while Rodney's recovering, um, he goes hunting these guys and uh, climbs up the mountain of name. Um, Wormuth Address. Wormuth Address. Wormuth Address. Yes. He goes up and uh, he, he finds a way up to try and sneak, sneak up on these guys. And uh, he runs into a sorcerer who's in the middle of, of communing with demons. 
And uh, obviously, he he doesn't really have a lot of experience with sorcerers um, because he, he interrupts him. <laughs> he just interrupts the guy. Yeah, he just kind of goes over the hill and is like, hey, who the hell are you? Yeah, and the sorcerer gets ticked off. Mm. But not ticked off enough to kill him because he's, you know, he's really more of a bother. Um, he interrupted this this ceremony, and it's going to take another cycle of whatever mm. to to do it again. So it, it can be done again, but it's going to take a long time. So he decides that to punish him, um, he's going to put Vuz under a gish, which is uh, compelling. Mm. He compels him to walk through these subhumans unarmed, but armored, mm-hmm. um, and to fight them all. Right. With your fists. Yes. Um, until you get to the caves that go underground. And once you get to the caves that go underground, you're going to prostrate yourself in front of Safagwa, who lives there, and you're going to basically say... Um, I've been sent for you to do as you please. Yeah, your your hungriness. I am the offering from the great wizard. Yeah, great wizard name. The great wizard Bandersnatch. Uh, uh, Esdegor. Esdegor. Jabberwock. Yeah. Um, insert name here. Um, and he has to say, "Harken, then uh, this is the the Gesh." For this is the Gesh that you must cast aside all your weapons and go unarmed into the dens of the Vormis and fighting barehanded against the Vormis and against their females and their young. You must win to that secret cave in the bowels of Vormithadrith, beyond the dens, wherein abides the eldermost aeons of the god Sathagwa. You shall know Sathagwa by his great girth and his bat-like furriness and the look of a sleepy black paddock which he has eternally. He will rise, not from his place, even in the ravening of hunger, but will wait in divine slothfulness for the sacrifice. And going close to Lord Sathagwa, you must say to him, I am the blood offering sent by the sorcerer Esgador. Then, if it be his pleasure, Sathagwa will avail himself of the offering. And he sends his pet Archaeopteryx to lead the way. Mm -hmm. Yes. And and the Archaeopteryx, which is it was a kind of a, a major character in this story itself, is kind of interesting as well. Yeah, he's kind of like this dour thing who for some reason has fealty to Esgridor. It's just familiar. Mm-hmm. Who knows what the story behind that was? Right. And so the Archaeopteryx leads Vuz to this cave. And because it's a Gesh, he has to do it. Right. He, he's, he's like moving. He's not, most of the story, he's under the, the Gesh. And he's thinking, he's perceiving, but he's also a little bit detached from his body because he's not really in control of his actions. Right. So it, it's kind of a, you know... You get this doom on you that you can do nothing about. And had the story not been so just humorous, 
Mm -hmm. and, and matter of fact, because it's got that Clark Ashton Smith matter of fact tone about it. Right. It's got the matter of fact um, tone, but it's also got that very tongue in cheek, uh, starting with the, the the encounter with the wizard. Uh, you know, the, the, this fire had the optical illusion effect that Vu's found quite disconcerting. And and you, there is horror here because. Um, Vu's, he, he can't make his own decisions. He is compelled to go and basically offer himself up on a plate mm -hmm. to, to this giant, squatting, furry, toad-like bat thing. Right. Um, but the way it's written, it doesn't sound horrible. You kind of have to think about what you're reading a little bit to get the horror. So uh, the horror is a little bit removed. The horror is a little bit removed, but... I think I think the tongue and cheekness of it vastly outshines the horror. It's it's kind of like arachnophobia in a way. Mm -hmm. It's it's like a gallows kind of. Oh, definitely, know. definitely a gallows humor. But if you, but the, the thing is that that this the humor is actually just perfectly masking a horrible situation because mm. as you will soon find out, uh, well we we talked about it. The Sagwa is isn't hungry anymore. He just <laughs> the Sagwa's high. <laughs> he just ate. So he just uh, ate. so he decides um, to to beat him on down the line mm -hmm. um, and puts him under a second gish. Mm -hmm. Keep count. <laughs> right. Um, Sends him he, to uh, Atlanacha. Yeah, this big. Spider uh, thing, yeah, the big spider god at Lachnacha, right? Where he has so, to say a similar um catechism. And yo, the saga sent me, right? And the bird, of course, is like, Oh, god damn, <sighs> just <clears> eat him <throat> already. Fly is like, All right, come on. <laughs> the bird is totally put out. Right, it's like it's like a demonic Woodstock from the yeah, people. You could see uh, the bird rolling his eyes. It speaks only in commas. Again, sir. It goes down, brings him by. And and this is why I say it's like Chicken Little, where Chicken Little was a series of of um, quests that Chicken Little had to perform in order to get what he wanted. Go to Mr. Toad and give me this, and then you can tell me the sky is falling. Right. Um, th this is the opposite. This is like I'm, you can eat me. No, 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 no. Go, go, go to the spider guy. So. Right. So he gets to this chasm, and and Alan Nacha is pretty much his job. The way he passes the the aeons is to build web bridges across this great chasm. Yeah. For, for unknown reasons. Right. Because, you know, he's, he's an ancient old deity and that's what he does. That's, yeah. Who knows? It probably holds the whole damn mountain together. It could, it could be, that could be the rift that holds the entire world together. So Vuz goes up to the edge of the cavern. He's like, yo, spider guy. I'm here for you to eat me. Yes, this one is um Oh Atlanta. I am the gift sent by Sathagua. Mm. 
And Alan Nacha comes up and he's like, ah, I'm really too busy. And you're wearing that goddamn armor. And, so, and you know, if I put you to work, the other, the, my minions would just tear you apart. Right. You know, and I ain't got time to eat you. Uh, how, how about this? You know, there's a, there's an inhuman sorcerer right across the cabin. In fact, I've built a bridge that leads you directly there. Yes. So his uh, name is Handor. Right. His name is Handor. And, uh, yeah, go tell him and, you know, I sent you and uh, maybe he'll find something to do with you. Uh, and I like how I, I like how Sathagwa was supposed to eat him. Right. And Alan Nacha is like, well, maybe I'll eat you. Maybe I'll put you to work. Yeah, you know, and then he's like, "Go see Hyon Door, and maybe he might find something to do with you. You know, right. give you a job or something. Who knows? He'll probably put you under another gash." <laughs> <laughs> tell him, tell him, not just you. right. <laughs> so he does. He's under this. He's under a third gash. Now goes into the temple. Uh, you know, he finds his way to the throne room. All of uh, the minions are like coming out of the walls. It's really kind of a creepy thing going on here. You know, you've got the, the ancient sorcerer sitting upon a throne. Yeah. And he looks down and he's like, Yeah. Nah. I wouldn't feed you to my minions, but uh, there's too many of them. Yeah, they fight over you. They'd fight over you. It's tell you what. <laughs> there's some serpent people that live down the road. Right. There's some serpent people that live down the road. I'm allied with the serpent people, and they could use you in their experiments. Yeah, they're they're like chemists and stuff. So This is, this is the part where the Illuminati is confirmed. Right. They're <laughs> chemists. Maybe they can oh, use you as ingredients or something. But these are the serpent people that, like... Nowadays, when you think of the serpent people and the great conspiracy, these are these guys, right? <laughs> these are the true masters of the world, right? Right, these, they're scientists and into technology and stuff. And our archaeopteryx is like, Oh, not again! Jesus flies him down to the serpent people. The serpent people are so enthralled with their experiments that he's the booze is like standing there going, Hey, he has to get their attention. <laughs> First. And and once he does that, once he gets their attention, they're like they whip out um, a couple of specimens of humans that they already have, which are pure. Well, specimens. One's a vormy and the other's a human. Yeah. And pure they have specimens. this long debate of comparative biology. <laughs> yes. And then they decide that uh that he is uh too inferior to further their knowledge. It's like, oh, well, and, and so they, they get they a representative. Him, they kick him on down the line. Well, they kick him on down the line. But first, they say, they, you know, they, they, they pull him aside and they're like, look, you know, we appreciate you coming. Uh, you know, we're really busy with our experiments right now. Uh, we're full up on ingredients. And really, as a specimen of humanity goes, we already got one. And you suck. And you suck. So, um, what we're going to do is we're going to hypnotize you and uh, kick you on down the road uh, to the, uh, the, 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 yeah, the, the archetypes. 
And um, yeah. Oh, by the way, this this hypnosis that we're going to put you on, wizards and stuff call it a gesh, but it's just <laughs> hypnosis, really. You know, it's it's all good. And it's, it's kind of funny, kind of hinting a little bit at that thing we were talking about last time. Um, with even though this isn't dying earth, but where technology and magic start to uh, combine and mm-hmm. become indistinguishable from each other, depending on where your your uh, current technology head is at. Right. But I, I really thought that the serpent people's speech was uh, was quite funny. Because it, it was so aloof and uh, almost so bureaucratic. Sorry, that was Joey's mom. Ah, well, you know, it was dramatically timed. Yeah. <laughs> so the servant people kick him on down the road to the archetypes. Uh, he's going into the archetypes, and there's these, like, protoplasm dinosaurs that try to eat him. <laughs> but they're out of phase with reality. So. Right. So it's like they eat him and he pretty much falls right out of their mouth. Yeah, like kind of like horrible gelatinous blob from Futurama. Right. And he get he, he's he's a little little bit perturbed by it. He's like, look guys, you know, don't don't this is getting annoying. <laughs> and yeah, and at this point, um he is his personality is becoming divorced from his actions. So he's almost viewing this um, abstractly. Mm-hmm. So he's gotten to the point. I mean, he's been, been compelled so many times that he's, uh, you know, he's lost touch with his own reality. Right. We are on uh, guest number four now. Right. And, and he finally, he meets the archetypes. Which is a really cool concept. Mm-hmm. So you have the, the archetypes of of everything that are dwell in this place, and uh, they look at him and they decide that he's a really poor specimen of humanity. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> they have no use for him, dude. I'm like offended that you're even here. <laughs> <laughs> What the hell are you? You know where you belong? Down the road a little ways is this amorphous blob that just extrudes monstrosities from itself. You must be one of those. Yes, go to Abba. Take it on down the road, pal. I don't want to we don't want to talk to you. And uh you, it's funny because you you you're getting like a lot of these these famous Charles, uh, Clark Ashton Smith gods um, that he's known for in mm-hmm. mythos circles. Sathagwa, um, Ab- Aboth, Alanacha. Alanacha. Yeah, and these are like all named beings. This is the Clark Ashton Smith equivalent of Cthulhu, Marathotep, mm-hmm. Azathoth. And they're, I won't say they're chill because, you know, they're not saying, I can't use you, go back home. (laughs) They're saying, I can't use you, but the next horrible thing down the road might. Might. Maybe. 
Um, or actually, now that we've gotten past the serpent people, the serpent people that kind of start flipping the script a little bit and just start telling him how how really he's useless to them, and he's a poor specimen of humanity. Right. You know, it's it's become less about being dinner and more about being you know something useful to them. Right. And and here's the thing: once he gets to Aboth. Um, he is Aboth is so fundamentally different mm-hmm. um, than matter or people or that kind of consciousness right. um, that, he, that he spews out all these monsters and if it isn't part of him or it if it isn't if if you aren't part of it it doesn't even recognize you. You right. are beyond nothing to it because it can't even notice you. And it even it spits out a pseudopod with an eye on it and does like the whole sniffer thing, says something in Hutties. All right. Uh, are you the navigator? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, decides that it's nothing because it's not part of it. I was like, uh, yeah, you're not me. So um, it says, I don't want to eat you. And he basically says you're free to go. Yeah, he says you you can go to the the you know the outer world with capital letters, after outer world after he says you know I would eat you but not really being sure what you are I think you might disagree with my sensitive digestive system <laughs> yes <laughs> the horrible thing that dwells in the center of the earth <laughs> that spews forth monsters constantly out has of a delicate substance. constitution. Has diverticulitis <laughs> and yeah. has to watch what it eats. That and that really that's where um, I bonded with the story. <laughs> Was his delicate constitution and yes, I, I, you might upset my I have, stomachs. I have something in common with an outer god. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so he, he, but he doesn't say you can go. He gives him another geish. Right. So now we are <laughs> on the seventh geish. We made it to the seventh geish, and it is uh, basically get as far away from me as possible and go to the outer world, which is mm-hmm. where he comes from. Yeah. And, and do it now. And uh, which is great because that's really what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And so the bird is like, well, Okay. Takes him out of the, you know, starts leading him out of the cave, leads him back around everybody else. Cause, you know, the bird doesn't want to, like, insult the rest of them by bringing him back through. Right. And, and he has to dodge all these monsters. That, oh, yeah. He's being chased by, like, yeah. All, all these monsters that, that come out of Aboth. And, and he, Aboth doesn't care, but the monsters sure do. Right. They're more than willing to to eat him. It kind of reminds me of that scene in um, Harry Potter. I, I think it's the Chamber of Secrets with the spiders, and uh, they're in the woods. And, and Harry Potter and Ron Weasley are before like the big honking spider, and they're like, "Well, we're just gonna go now. Um, you promise not to eat us, right?" And the spider's like, "Oh yeah, I'm not gonna eat you, but I can't speak for my kids." Right. And so he's being chased and chased. And he gets to the bridge, and on the bridge is a sloth creature with ass eyes. 
<laughs> who is like taking way too long to cross this bridge. <laughs> yes. And unfortunately, and 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 Vu's like he he skids to a stop at the at the edge of the cliff, and he's like sitting there, like mm-hmm. he's got monsters. Monsters him. are are bearing down on him, and you know. You know, the girl from Ipanema starts playing, you know, the elevator music. (laughs) He's checking his watch. He's like, oh, come on. Music changes. Monsters are coming. Monsters are coming. Back to him, that little guy. Sloth makes it across. Right, and 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 Vuz isn't really sure if it's ass eyes or, you know, if it's walking backwards or. <laughs> but finally, the sloth gets across, and he's like, "All right, let's go." Unfortunately, goes across the bridge. The fucking spider silk breaks, and he falls to his death, or falls into the chasm that no one has ever. No one knows what's down there. Right. And this, unfortunately, was a contingency that had not been provided against by the terms of the seventh Gaius, or Gesh. And that's how it ends. And that's, that's how it ends. Last line of the story. The, the last line of the story. Essentially, you've just read this horrible adventure through the underworld, and Clark Ashton Smith just slaps you across the face with a punchline. Yeah, it's a big joke. You know, it's like I, I I was sitting there thinking while I was reading it, you know, thinking, you know, Eric Idle reading this story or uh, the guy from Hitchhiker's Guide who played the book um, or possibly even Garrison Keillor telling this story. <laughs> oh, please, no. <laughs> but you, you see what I mean, though. It's got that whole... The way it ends has that whole uh, oops, oops. You didn't see that one coming, did you? And and it's not even the fact that he falls into the pit. No, it's the fact that oh yeah, I guess um, he could have been told don't fall into any pits. Right. <laughs> Find a way to do it safely. Right. The, the specific which, specifics were not given, so right, which is odd because the other, especially the first uh, Gesh, was oddly specific. Mm-hmm. Right, and the, the Gesh is even the women and the children. Right. Well, if you notice, while the while the Geshes increase in number, they also decrease in complexity. Right, because the only one who really cared was the sorcerer at the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. He's the one who was offended. He's the only one who wants to make sure it happens. Everyone else is kind of just like seeing this problem of uh, Vors or Vuz, and and he's a problem to them. He's an irritant. He's not something they they even care enough about to to get rid of. They just kick him on down the line. Hmm. Kick him on down the line to the next guy. And and as as the next guy 
becomes more and more of an abstraction, which really happens after the serpent people. I mean, everything mm -hmm. after the serpent people is just kind of like, whoa. Yeah, right. The last two, the last two gods we see are just abstract things. You have yeah. you know, the archetypes, which are the the perfect, uh, the perfect, perfect representations. Right. And, and then you have the process of creation itself. Right. And uh, you got to think that they're just like, like an oyster with a, with a pearl. Just get it out of there. Mm -hmm. this is the well, way. And, and it, what's really interesting is that I believe that this story actually inspired the spell in, in fantasy role-playing games because there is a contingent in the spell description that I remember from like, you know, like say second edition D and D, where you had lesser geish and greater geish, that actually says you have to be very specific in what you tell the target of the spell to do. Yeah, it's it's odd when you read these old stories um, that everyone knows about, because I, I had actually never read this story before. But I, you know, obviously, I'd heard of it. Right. Um, that you you get where a lot of um, early role playing designers got their ideas from. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of a lot. I mean, a lot of people you know cite Conan and Lord of the Rings as being like the main impetus for D anD D. But uh, right. you know, look at those spells and how they work. Right. The um, the actual. And, spells and story structures and and types of adventures that that these characters these these early designers were creating Clark Ashton Smith is more of it than Clark Ashton Smith and and Jack Vance mm -hmm. we should do something on Jack Vance eventually yeah. but um but you know that's where because Conan stories are all about Conan right I mean, let's face it um, so you don't have four to six players. <laughs> right. He's the single player champion. Um, with impossible odds. You know, you have four to six people who are, who who go through an actual story, like structure quest, which is more along the lines of this than Conan ever was. Uh, Conan goes where he wants to go and does whatever he wants to do on his whim. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes he's motivated by greed. Sometimes he's motivated by um hormones but it, it it doesn't really make for a good game if you're playing it straight like that and right. then, same thing with lovecraft with call of cthulhu you know your typical lovecraft story involves a single protagonist who is buffeted by um by you know, circumstances beyond his or her control, mostly his, let's face it. Right. Um, and, and that doesn't make for a really good um, game either because, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, who cares? You don't get that interaction. And, and you get that, even though, like, these stories, especially the, the, the last one we read. Dark Eidolon? Dark Eidolon, where you had like a group of people who weren't necessarily fighting a wizard, but they were involved, mm -hmm. you know, to a greater or lesser extent. And um, the first story you read, uh, Sampras, 
or you had two people who were adventuring and you start to get into a more of a group dynamic that right. way. Um, and, you know, you have the Lord of the Rings, but I mean, if you can structure a game of that epicness and have it all, you know, mesh together that well, I, I, now I'll, I'll shake your hand. <laughs> now, <clears throat> one of the things that that struck me about about this is is that it the story was so funny. Um, you know, I, I mentioned you know Eric Idle earlier uh, as a possible narrator, and I went back on the YouTube after I finished reading it and pulled up a an audio recording. Mm-hmm. And listening to the uh, narrator of the audio recording telling the story, this was completely different from the voice, that inner voice in your head when you're reading. Right. Is the, he was reading it, he was playing it straight, he was reading it as if he were reading the to be or not to be soliloquy, you know, at the Royal Albert Hall, Albert Hall or something. You know, he's on stage, and this is the tale of Robin Avuz, who hunts the saber-toothed tiger, and he meets an evil wizard. Right. You know, but you know, I'm I'm hearing it as you know the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy telling me this story, and it's just, it's just popping out. And in my mind, there's the comedy and horror both play on the same psychological mechanic, which is, which is, you know, you built up this expectation and then you're hit with the unexpected. And a lot of good weird fiction, a lot of good atmospheric horror, you know, they build up this expectation or, and, and, then they slowly start altering your perception slowly, slowly. And in comedy it's, it's built up and then you're just slapped across the face. Um, I think I mentioned at some point in the past that horror and comedy com- of the two comedy is actually more violent a process, but it seems that that, that Clark Ashton Smith here. He always had a little bit of humor in his stories, but this one here just seems to be played more for laughs than anything. It's almost like he's taking the piss on all the other stories that are in Weird Tales. <laughs> you know, because he has the big strapping adventurer hulking guy with weapons everywhere, and he has these you know nightmarish outer gods and the interaction that you're expecting is not what you would get from other writers. Yes. You know, Robert E. Howard would have written the whole battle with the Vormis, right? And he's punched the guy in the face and broke his jaw. And well, you would Conan have gotten, would never that would have been, been the entire story. Well, Conan would never have been under a gish. That's true. <laughs> I mean,. <laughs> Right, that whole part would made it that far because yeah. no one gets the better of Conan. That's right. Because Conan would have walked by and he's like, what are you doing here? I'm fucking Conan, bitch. If you get the better of Conan, it's, it's always like a cheap shot. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, and Lovecraft. Yeah, and, well, you know, instead yeah. of instead of um, you know, Vu's going into the lair of Sathagwa and just going instantly insane and my God, my God, what what foul things the universe has wrought. Well, right, and, he would have fainted and woken up um, in like some tenement, right, in in New York, being chased by swarthy men and uh, addicted to morphine. Mm-hmm. While while something squat was scratching at the window, right, exactly, and in this case you have oh yeah I'm full man just but then again on. a Lovecraftian protagonist would have been hunting you. That's true, <laughs> that's true. That's a foul thing. I might get dirty. I am um, an archaeologist hunting saber tooth tigers from Miskatonic University. Um, please. Now, now, yes, they, now they would have. You are bringing my bathtub, correct? <laughs> he may have gone on an expedition to the the mountain to uh, look at the the archaeological remains of the Bornish. Yes, um, and encountered Sathagwa um, through while he was digging. Mm-hmm. That would have happened in a Lovecraft story, and right. uh, he wouldn't have made it past Sathagwa. Uh, because he would have fainted and blah blah blah, right? And and warned everyone when not to go to these particular mountains because of and he would have listed off all the different names, right? Well, because there was going to be another expedition to those mountains to pick off pick up where they left off, and he has to try and stop it, right? So so but the no seven guesses is not at the mountains of madness; it's at the mountains of passing the buck, right? <laughs> And, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so great because we've we've commented several times as we were reading other mythos and, and Lovecraftian style anthologies, uh, collections of weird fiction and, and the like, that humor doesn't get used as often as it really should. A lot of times these stories are played straight. It's doom and gloom. It's madness and, and whatnot. But... You know, I really think that that Clark Ashton Smith style of, you know, just a little bit of tongue in cheek, you know, un, an, un, a, an underspoken thing here and there, or, or occasionally a slap in the face, like, unfortunately, uh, this sort of event wasn't planned for in the seventh gish. Right. <laughs> well, and, and that's the kind of thing that you'll get. Um, in a role-playing group mm-hmm. that you not are not necessarily going to get in fiction. Um, you know, so, some writers have more of a sense of humor than others. Right. Um, and I think uh, probably Clark Ashton Smith had the biggest sense of humor of all those guys. Right. Um, I, I just get the impression, and, and I, I honestly don't know enough about the man to, to say this with any authority, but from his writing, mm-hmm. A, I feel that he enjoys writing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Hi, Molly. And, and B, um, I think that he doesn't take it as seriously as um, his peers did. Right. Um, and well, that I mean, might have been because he had a reputation beyond the weird tale. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, he was also a renowned uh, poet. He was a proper poet. 
um, a West Coast romantic. You know, maybe maybe he was looking at you know this as like, yeah, it's a paycheck, um, you know, but it's disposable magazines, and whatnot. You know, why why do I have to pour out something completely serious? You know, look at look at this look at this Herbert West reanimator thing. I mean, come on, Howard. And then and then <laughs> and then um, look how at what happened to all those guys. Mm-hmm. Robert E. Howard shot himself. Right. Uh, Lovecraft died of cancer and poverty. Eating, made it to the sixties. Yeah, made it made it to the sixties. There's actually recordings of him reading his own poetry. Maybe like just because he wasn't as stressed out <laughs> and didn't I mean, take himself as seriously. That's as a possibility, you know, being super chill. And and that's that's one of the things that that strikes me with the tone as well is that it's written by a really kind of chill guy. Yeah, he uses this romantic language, the Greek words, the um the like 18th century uh almost poetic flourishes in his language. But, you know, his like like I keep saying his tongue is firmly planted in his cheek and he's able to he's like this this story is ridiculous. It it really is. I love it, but it's ridiculous. Yeah. And you know, we know a lot of guys and, and, and ladies in this scene. The, the weird fiction. Right. New weird horror. And a lot of them, a lot of them are genuinely funny fucking people. Yeah. You learn stuff like that on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and people we've talked to, you know, Hanging out at Necronomicon, right, right, shit like that. Yeah, these are these are for some reason that sense of humor doesn't translate into their work. You know, there's a there's a separation between you know this this horror story that I'm writing, and uh, yeah, here's a here's a picture of a dog exploding. Okay, I don't know if I've seen that one, but no. <laughs> I got you. I had to interject a little bit of dark humor of my own. But yes, I see where you're coming from, um, and and maybe some people can take a a hint or two, a clue from Clark Ashton Smith, and and maybe lighten up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and and maybe maybe lightening up a little bit will kind of solve some of these problems. But that wraps it up for Clark Ashton Smith, and we'll probably have to do this again because that man's got fun. a body of work. Yeah, and it was fun. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. I I really enjoyed this. So next time we're going to do a kind of um, post op or yeah. an autopsy or whatever you want to call it on uh, the. Tomb of Horrors, which we recently finished uh, going through, suffering through mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> six six two hour sessions, so twelve hours of gameplay, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, uh, to bring you this episode, uh, if you want to listen to to the slapstick rendition of Tomb of Horrors, um, you can check it out on Spotify. You can check it out on Podbean iTunes, Google Play, everywhere you can get the Microphones of Madness podcast. That's right. Um, it's just simply labeled Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. Um, 
One through six. One through six. Until next time. 30 luck points, people. Keep those 30 luck points. Peace out. Later.